93 by Victor Hugo, Part 2, Books 1 and 2. These chapters have been abridged. Simordan was a pure but dark conscience. He had the absolute in him. He had been a priest, which is a grave matter. Like the sky, a man can have a black serenity. It requires only that something make night inside him. The priesthood had made night inside Simordan. Anyone who has ever been a priest is still a priest. What makes night in us may also leave stars in us. Simordan was full of virtues and truths, but they shone in the shadows. The story of his life had not been long. He had been a village priest and a tutor in a great family. Then he had received a small inheritance and made himself free. He was, above all, a headstrong man. He used meditation as one uses a pair of pincers. He did not think he had a right to leave an idea until he had followed it through to the end. He thought relentlessly. He knew all the European languages and a little of some others besides. He studied constantly, which helped him to bear his chastity. But nothing can be more dangerous than such repression. As a priest, he had kept his vows, whether out of pride, by chance, or from haughtiness of soul. But he had not been able to keep his belief. Science had demolished his faith. Dogma had vanished within him. Then, in examining himself, he felt as though he had been mutilated. Unable to unmake himself a priest, he had worked toward remaking himself as a man, but in an austere manner. His family had been taken away from him. He adopted his country. A wife had been refused to him. He espoused humanity. Such enormous plenitude is, at bottom, emptiness. In making him a priest, his peasant parents had wanted to raise him above the people. He had returned to the people. He had returned passionately. He looked with terrible tenderness on those who suffered. From a priest he had become a philosopher, and from a philosopher a fighter. While Louis XV was still alive, Simordan had felt vaguely republican. Of what republic? Of Plato's, perhaps, and perhaps also of Draco's. Having been forbidden to love, he began to hate. He hated lies, monarchy, theocracy, his priestly garments. He hated the present, and he loudly called for the future. He had a presentiment of it. He glimpsed it in advance. He sensed that it would be terrifying and magnificent. To put an end to lamentable human misery, he anticipated an avenger who would also be a liberator. He worshipped the catastrophe from a distance. In 1789, this catastrophe had arrived and found him ready. He had thrown himself into that vast human renewal with logic, that is, for a mind of his stamp, inexorably. Logic is not moved to pity. He had lived through the great revolutionary years and quivered with all those mighty movements. 89, the fall of the Bastille and the end of the people's ordeal. 90, on August 4th, the end of feudalism. 91, Varenne, the end of royalty. 92, the advent of the Republic. He had seen the revolution arise, 
and he was not a man to be afraid of that giant. Far from it. That growth of everything had invigorated him, and although he was already nearly old, he was fifty, and a priest ages faster than other men. He, too, had begun to grow. From year to year he had watched events become larger, and he had become larger with them. At first he had feared that the revolution might prove abortive. He observed it. It had reason and right on its side. He demanded that it also have success, and the more frightening it became, the more reassured he felt. He wanted Minerva, crowned with the stars of the future, to be palace also, and have the serpent mask as her shield. He wanted her divine eyes to be able, if necessary, to cast an infernal glare at the demons, and give them terror for terror. He had thus reached ninety-three. Ninety-three was the war of Europe against France, and of France against Paris. And what was the revolution? It was the victory of France over Europe, and of Paris over France. Hence the immensity of that terrible moment, ninety-three, greater than all the rest of the century. Nothing could have been more tragic than Europe attacking France, and France attacking Paris. It was a drama that had the stature of an epic. Ninety-three was an intense year. The storm was there in all its wrath and all its grandeur. Simordan felt at ease in it. That wild, savage, splendid environment suited the scope of his mind. Like the sea eagle, he had a profound inner calm along with an outer liking for risk. Certain winged, fierce, and tranquil natures are made for the great winds. There are true souls of the storm. He had a special pity, reserved only for the poor and wretched. He was devoted in the face of that kind of suffering which arouses horror. Nothing was repugnant to him. That was his kind of goodness. He was hideously and divinely helpful. He sought open sores in order to kiss them. Good deeds that are ugly to see are the most difficult to perform. He preferred them. One day at the Hotel Dieu a man was dying, choked by a tumor in his throat, a horrible, fetid, and perhaps contagious abscess which had to be emptied immediately. Simordan was there. He put his mouth to the tumor, pumped it, spitting out each time his mouth became full, emptied the abscess, and saved the man's life. Since he was still wearing his priest's garb at this time, someone said to him, If you did that to the king, you'd be made a bishop. Simordan answered, I wouldn't do it to the king. His act and his reply made him popular in the dark quarters of Paris. Consequently, he was able to do as he wished with those who suffered, wept, and threatened. During the period of anger against hoarders, an anger that was so fertile in mistakes, it was Simmerdan who, with a word, prevented the pillage of a boat laden with soap at the Port St. Nicholas, and who dispersed the furious mobs that were stopping carriages at the Saint-Lazare Gate. It was he who, two days after the 10th of August, led the people to overturn the statues of the kings. These statues sometimes killed when they fell. At the Place Vendôme, 
a woman, Ren Violette, was crushed by Louis the Fourteenth, around whose neck she had put a rope which she was pulling. This statue of Louis the Fourteenth had stood for a hundred years. It had been erected on August twelfth, sixteen ninety two, and it was pulled down on August twelfth, seventeen ninety two. At the Place de la Concorde, a man named Gangerlo, who had called the demolishers a rabble, was beaten to death on Louis the Fifteenth's pedestal. The statue was broken to pieces. It was later melted down and made into coins. Only an arm escaped, the right arm, which Louis the Fifteenth had extended with the gesture of a Roman emperor. It was at Simordan's request that the people sent a delegation to take the arm to Latude, the man who had been buried in the Bastille for thirty-seven years. When Latude, with an iron collar around his neck and a chain around his waist, was rotting alive in that prison by order of that king whose statue dominated Paris, who could have told him that the prison would be destroyed, that the statue would be overturned, that he would come out of the tomb, and that the monarchy would go into it, that he, the prisoner, would be master of that bronze hand which had signed the order to imprison him, and that nothing would remain of that king of mud except that bronze arm. Simordan was one of those men who have a voice within them, and who listen to it. Such men seem distracted. Not at all. They are attentive. Simordan knew everything and was ignorant of everything. He knew everything about science and nothing about life. Hence his rigidity. He was blindfolded, like Homer's Themis. He had the blind certainty of the arrow, which sees nothing but the goal and goes toward it. In a revolution, there is nothing so formidable as a straight line. Simordan went straight ahead, fatefully. Simordan believed that, in social processes, solid ground lay at the extreme point, an error common to minds which replace reason with logic. He went beyond the convention. He went beyond the commune. He was a member of the Avesche. This assembly, known as the Avesche because it held its meetings in a room of a former episcopal palace, was really a complication of men, rather than an assembly. There, as at the commune, sat those silent and significant spectators, who had on them, as Garat said, as many pistols as pockets. The Avesche was a strange mixture, both cosmopolitan and Parisian which is not contradictory, since Paris is the place where the heart of the peoples beats. Here was the great plebeian incandescence. Compared to the Avesche, the convention was cold, and the commune was lukewarm. The Avesche was one of those revolutionary formations similar to a volcanic formation. It contained everything—ignorance, stupidity, probity, heroism, anger, and police. Brunswick had agents there. It contained men who were worthy of Sparta, and men who deserved imprisonment. Most of them were mad and honest. Through the mouth of Enard, temporary president of the convention, the Gironde had made a monstrous statement. Parisians, beware. Not one stone of your city will remain upon another, and some day men will try to find the place where Paris stood. This statement had created the Avesche. Men, and, as we have just said, they were men from all nations, 
had felt the need of gathering closely around Paris. Simordan had joined this group. It reacted against the reactionaries. It was born of that public need for violence, which is the formidable and mysterious side of revolutions. Strong with this strength, the Avache had immediately made a place for itself. In the upheavals of Paris, it was the commune which fired the cannon, and the Avache which sounded the tocsin. In his implacable ingenuousness, Simordan believed that all was equity in the service of the truth. This made him well fitted to dominate the extreme parties. Scoundrels felt that he was honest and were satisfied. Crimes are flattered at being presided over by virtue. It is both troublesome and pleasant to them. Palois, the architect who had exploited the demolition of the Bastille, selling the stones for his own profit, and who, when ordered to paint Louis the Sixteenth's cell, had shown his zeal by covering the wall with bars, chains, and iron collars. Gonchon, the questionable orator of the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, whose receipts were found later. Fournier, the American, who on July 17th had fired at Lafayette a pistol shot paid for, it was said, by Lafayette. Henriot, who had come out of Bicet, and who had been a valet, a mountebank, a thief, and a spy, before becoming a general, and pointing cannons at the convention. La Reynie, former vicar-general of Chartres, who had replaced his breviary with Le Père Duchesne. All these men were held in check by Simordan, and there were times when, to prevent the worst of them from faltering, it was sufficient for them to feel that formidable, earnest candor tensed in front of them. It was thus that Saint-Just terrified Schneider. At the same time, the majority of the Avesche, composed of paupers and violent men who were good, believed in Simordan and followed him. As his curate or aide-de-camp, however one might call him, he had that other Republican priest, D'Anjou, whom the people loved because of his height and had christened Father Sixfoot. Simordan could easily have dominated that intrepid leader called General Lepique, and that bold Truchon, known as Grand Nicholas, who had tried to save Madame de Lamballe, and had given her his arm and made her step over the corpses. The attempt would have been successful if it had not been for the barber Charlot's ferocious joke. The Commune kept an eye on the Convention, and the Avesche kept an eye on the Commune. Simordan, a straightforward man who was repelled by intrigue, had broken more than one mysterious threat in the hand of Pache, whom Bernonville called the black man. Within the Avesche, Simordan was on close terms with everyone. He was consulted by Dobson and Momoro. He spoke Spanish to Guzman, Italian to Pio, English to Arthur, Flemish to Pereira, German to the Austrian Prawley, bastard son of a prince. He created harmony among those dissonances. Hence he had an obscure and strong position. Hébert feared him. In those tragic times and in those tragic groups, Simordan had the power of the inexorable. He was not liable to sin, and therefore believed himself to be infallible. No one had ever seen him weep. His virtue was icy and inaccessible. He was that frightening thing, a just man. There was no middle ground for a priest in the revolution. 
A priest could abandon himself to the prodigious adventure for only the lowest or the highest motives. He had to be either infamous or sublime. Simordan was sublime, but sublime in isolation, in lofty remoteness, in inhospitable lividity, surrounded by precipices. High mountains have that kind of sinister virginity. Simordan had the appearance of an ordinary man. He wore shabby, undistinguished clothes. When he was young, he had been tonsured. As an older man, he was bald. What little hair he had left was gray. His forehead was broad, and to a keen observer it bore a sign. He had a blunt, passionate, and solemn way of speaking. His voice was curt, his tone peremptory. His mouth was sad and bitter. His eyes were bright and deep, and on the whole face there was an elusive look of indignation. Such was Simordan. Today no one knows his name. History has a number of those terrible unknowns. Was such a man a man? Could the servant of the human race have an affection? Was he not too completely a soul to have a heart? Could that vast embrace, which admitted everything and every one, be reserved for someone in particular? Could Simordan love? Let us say it, yes. When he was young and a tutor in an almost princely family, he had had a pupil, the son and heir of the house, and he had loved him. It is so easy to love a child. For what is a child not forgiven? He is forgiven for being a lord, a prince, a king. The innocence of his age makes one forget the crimes of his race. His weakness makes one forget the exaggeration of his rank. He is so small that he is forgiven for being great. The slave forgives him for being a master. The old negro idolizes the white infant. Simordan had conceived a passion for his pupil. One of the ineffable characteristics of childhood is that it enables one to exhaust all kinds of love in it. Everything in Simordan that was capable of loving had pounced, so to speak, on that child. That gentle, innocent creature became a kind of prey to that heart doomed to solitude. He loved him with every tenderness at once, as a father, as a brother, as a friend, as a creator. The boy was his son, the son not of his flesh, but of his mind. He was not the father, and this was not his work, but he was the master, and this was his masterpiece. From that little lord he had made a man. Who knows, perhaps a great man, for such are dreams. Unknown to the family, does one need permission to create an intelligence, a will, and an upright character? He had communicated to the young Vicomte, his pupil, all the progress that was in him. He had inoculated him with the redoubtable virus of his virtue. He had infused into his veins his conviction, his conscience, his ideal. Into that aristocratic brain he had poured the soul of the people. The mind suckles. Intelligence is abreast. There is an analogy between the wet nurse who gives her milk and the tutor who gives his thought.
Sometimes the tutor is more of a father than the father, just as the wet nurse is often more of a mother than the mother. This deep spiritual paternity bound Simordan to his pupil. The mere sight of that child filled him with tender emotion. Let us add this. It was easy to replace the boy's father, for he no longer had one. He was an orphan. His father and mother were both dead. He had no one to look after him except a blind grandmother and an absent granduncle. His grandmother died. His granduncle, head of the family, a soldier with a high rank and duties at court, avoided the old family castle, lived at Versailles, traveled with the army, and left the orphan alone in the solitary castle. The tutor was therefore the master, in every sense of the word. Let us also add this. Simordan had known the child from birth. After becoming an orphan at a very early age, the boy had been seized with a serious illness. In danger of death, Simordan had kept watch over him day and night. It is the physician who treats the patient, but the nurse who saves him. And Simordan had saved the child. Not only did his pupil owe him his upbringing, his education, and his knowledge, but also his convalescence and his health. Not only did he owe him his thoughts, but also his life. We worship those who owe us everything. Simordan worshipped that child. The natural separation of life had taken place. When the upbringing was over, Simordan had to leave the boy, who had now become a young man. With what cold and unconscious cruelty those separations are carried out. How calmly families dismiss a tutor who leaves his thoughts in a child, and a nurse who leaves her entrails in him. Simordan, paid and turned out of the house, left the upper world and returned to the lower world. The partition between the great and the small was put back in place. The young lord, an officer by birth, was made a captain from the beginning, and went off to some garrison or other. The humble tutor, already an unruly priest in the depths of his heart, hastened to return to that dark ground floor of the church known as the lower clergy, and Simordan had lost sight of his pupil. The revolution had come. The memory of that child he had made into a man had continued to smolder within him, hidden but not extinguished by the immensity of public affairs. It is a beautiful thing to mold a statue and give it life. It is still more beautiful to shape an intelligence and give it truth. Simordan was the Pygmalion of a soul. A mind can have a child. That pupil, that child, that orphan was the only person on earth whom he loved. But was such a man vulnerable even in such an affection? We shall see. On the Rue de Peon there was a tavern that was called a café. It had a back room, which is now historical. It was occasionally the scene of almost secret meetings among men who were so powerful and so constantly watched that they hesitated to speak to one another in public. On June 28, 1793, three men were gathered around a table in that back room. Their chairs did not touch. They had each sat down on one side of the table, 
leaving the fourth side vacant. It was about eight o'clock in the evening. There was still daylight in the street, but it was dark in the back room, and a lamp, a luxury in those days, was hanging from the ceiling, lighting the table. The first of these three men was pale, young, and solemn, with thin lips and cold eyes. He had a nervous tick in his cheek, which must have made it difficult for him to smile. His hair was powdered, his hands were gloved, his clothes were carefully brushed and buttoned, and there were no wrinkles in his light blue coat. He wore nankeen knee breeches, white stockings, a high cravat, a pleated shirt front, and shoes with silver buckles. As for the other two men, one of them was a kind of giant, and the other was a kind of dwarf. The big one was untidily dressed in a loose scarlet coat. His neck was bare above an untied cravat which hung down below his shirt front. His short jacket was open, and some of its buttons were missing. He was wearing top boots, and his hair was tousled, although it still showed traces of having been carefully arranged. His wig reminded one of a mane. His face was pockmarked. There was an angry crease between his eyebrows, and a wrinkle of kindness at the corners of his lips. He had thick lips, big teeth, the hands of a stevedore, and flashing eyes. The little one was a yellow man who looked deformed when he was seated. His head was tilted back, his eyes were bloodshot, there were livid blotches on his face. He had a handkerchief tied around his greasy, straight hair. He had no forehead and an enormous, frightening mouth. He wore long trousers, slippers, a vest which looked as though it might have been made of white satin, and over this vest a peasant jacket in whose folds a straight, hard line revealed the presence of a dagger. The first of these men was named Robespierre, the second, Danton, the third, Marat. Outside the door was Marat's watchdog. That evening, having been brought by his master to the café on the Rue du Péon, he was under orders to guard the door of the room in which Marat, Danton, and Robespierre were meeting, and not to allow anyone to enter except someone from the Committee of Public Safety, the Commune, or the Évêché. The conference had already lasted a long time. It had been called with regard to the papers spread out on the table, which Robespierre had read aloud. The three men were beginning to raise their voices. Something like anger was rumbling among them. Just then a voice arose from the back of the room. They all turned around. Someone had come in unnoticed through the back door. "'Ah, it's you, Citizen Simordan,' said Marat. "'How are you?' It was indeed Simordan. His entrance had the effect of a splash of cold water and like the arrival of a stranger during a household quarrel, it at least quieted the surface, if not the depths. Simordan stepped toward the table. Danton and Robespierre knew him. They had often noticed in the visitors' gallery of the convention that powerful and obscure man whom the people greeted. Robespierre, however, always concerned with formalities, asked, "'Citizen, how did you come in?' "'He belongs to the Évêché,' Marat said in a voice that betrayed a certain submission. Marat defied the convention, led the commune, and feared the évêché. Danton saw Marat yielding. "'Citizen Simordan is welcome,' he said. He shook his hand. Then, "'Listen, 
Let's explain the situation to Citizen Simordan. He's come at a good time. I represent the Mountain. Robespierre represents the Committee of Public Safety. Marat represents the Commune, and Simordan represents the Avache. He'll break the deadlock among us. Very well, Simordan said in a solemn and simple tone. What's the matter under discussion? Vendée, replied Robespierre. Vendée, said Simordan. That's the great threat. If the revolution dies, it will die because of Vendée. One Vendée is more to be feared than ten Germanies. If France is to live, Vendée must be killed. These few words placed Robespierre on his side. However, Robespierre asked him this question. Aren't you a former priest? A priestly heir did not escape Robespierre. He recognized outside of him what he had within him. Yes, citizen, replied Simordan. What difference does that make, cried Danton. When priests are good, they're better than anyone else. During a revolution, priests can be melted into citizens, just as bells are melted into coins and cannons. Let's get back to Vendée, said Robespierre. Well, what's wrong? asked Simordan. What's Vendée doing? Robespierre answered. This. It has a leader. It's about to become terrible. Who is that leader, citizen Robespierre? He's the former Marquis de Lantenac, who calls himself a Breton prince. Simordan made a movement. I know him, he said. I was a priest in his household. He reflected for a moment. He was a ladies' man before he was a soldier. And Simordan added thoughtfully, Yes, he's a former man of pleasure. He must be terrible. Horrible, said Robespierre. He burns villages, kills wounded men, massacres prisoners, shoots women. Women? Yes. Among others, he had a mother of three children shot. No one knows what became of the children. Furthermore, he's a real soldier. He knows war. Yes, replied Simordan. He was in the Hanoverian War, and the soldiers used to say, Richelieu on top? Lantenac underneath. It was Lantenac who was the real general. Ask Dussault, your colleague, about it. Robespierre remained thoughtful for a moment. Then the conversation resumed between him and Simordan. Well, citizen Simordan, that man is in Vendée. How long has he been there? Three weeks. He must be declared an outlaw. It's been done. A price must be put on his head. It's been done. A big reward must be offered for his capture. It's been done. Not in Ossignats. It's been done. In gold. It's been done. And he must be guillotined. It will be done. By whom? By you. By me? Yes. You'll be a delegate of the Committee of Public Safety, with full powers. I accept, said Simordan. Robespierre made his choices rapidly, a quality of a true statesman. From the folder in front of him he took a sheet of white paper, which bore this printed heading. French Republic, one and indivisible. Committee of Public Safety. Yes, I accept, Simordan went on. It will be one terrible man against another. Lantenac is ferocious. I'll be ferocious, too. 
I'll fight a war to the death against him. I'll save the Republic from him, God willing. He stopped, then said, I'm a priest. It doesn't matter. I believe in God. God is out of date, said Danton. I believe in God, Simordan said impassively. Robespierre expressed approval with a sinister nod. To whom am I going to be sent? asked Simordan. To the commander of the expeditionary force that's been sent against Lantanac. However, I warn you that he's a nobleman. There's something else I don't care about, cried Danton. A nobleman? What of it? It's the same with noblemen as it is with priests. When they're good, they're excellent. Citizen Danton, citizen Robespierre, Simordan said in his deep voice, you may be right to be confident, but the people are wary, and they're not wrong. When a priest is delegated to keep watch over a nobleman, his responsibility is double, and he must be inflexible. Of course, said Robespierre. Simordan added, and inexorable. Well said, citizen Simordan, said Robespierre. You'll be dealing with a young man. The fact that you're twice his age will give you a certain ascendancy over him. You must direct him, but you must treat him gently. He apparently has military talent. All the reports are unanimous on that point. He's part of a force that was detached from the Army of the Rhine to go to Vendée. He just left the border, where he was admirable for his intelligence and bravery. He's been leading the expeditionary force in a superior manner. For the past two weeks, he's been holding that old Marquis de Lantanac in check. He's been restraining him and driving him back. Lantanac has the craftiness of an old general, and he has the daring of a young captain. Half a million peasants in revolt and an English invasion of France. That's Lantanac's plan. The young commander of the expeditionary force has put his sword to Lantanac's back and is pressing and beating him, without Lachelle's permission. Lachelle is his superior, so Lachelle denounces him. Opinions are divided with regard to that young man. Lachelle wants to have him shot. Prior de Lamarne wants to make him an adjutant general. That young man seems to have great qualities, said Simordan. But he has one fault. The interruption came from Marat. What is it? asked Simordan. Clemency, said Marat. He's firm in battle and soft afterward. He's indulgent. He forgives. He spares. He protects nuns. He saves the wives and daughters of aristocrats. He sets prisoners free. He releases priests. A serious fault, murmured Simordan. A crime, said Marat. Sometimes, said Danton. Often, said Robespierre. Nearly always, said Marat. When one is dealing with enemies of the country, always, said Simordan. Marat turned to him. And what would you do with a Republican leader who'd released a Royalist leader? I'd agree with Lachelle. I'd have him shot. Or guillotine, said Marat. He could have his choice, said Simordan. Danton laughed. I like one as well as the other. You're sure to have one or the other, muttered Marat. His eyes left Danton and returned to Simordan. So, citizen Simordan, if a Republican leader faltered, you'd cut off his head? Within twenty-four hours. Well then, said Marat, I agree with Robespierre. 
Citizen Simordan should be sent as a delegate of the Committee of Public Safety to the commander of the Expeditionary Force of the Coastal Army. What's that commander's name again? Robespierre answered. He's a former nobleman. And he began looking through the papers in the folder. Let's have the priest guard the nobleman, said Danton. I mistrust a priest who's alone or a nobleman who's alone. When they're together, I'm not afraid of them. One watches the other, and they do well. The indignation that was always present on Simordan's forehead became accentuated. But then, apparently deciding that the remark was basically accurate, he did not turn to Danton. He raised his stern voice. If the Republican commander who's confided to me makes one false step, it will be punished by death. Robespierre, with his eyes on the folder, said, Here's his name. Citizen Simordan, the commander over whom you'll have full power is a former vicomte named Gauvin. Simordan turned pale. Gauvin, he cried. Marat saw his pallor. Vicomte Gauvin? said Simordan. Yes, said Robespierre. Well, said Marat, staring at Simordan. There was a pause. Marat went on. Citizen Simordan, on the conditions specified by yourself, are you willing to be assigned to Major Gauvin as a delegate of the committee? Is it agreed? It is, replied Simordan. He was turning paler and paler. Robespierre picked up the pen in front of him, wrote four lines in his slow, formal handwriting on a sheet of paper which bore the heading Committee of Public Safety, signed his name, and passed the pen and paper to Danton. Danton signed his name, and Marat signed after him, without taking his eyes off Simordan's livid face. Robespierre took back the sheet of paper, dated it, and handed it to Simordan, who read, Year two of the Republic. Full powers are hereby given to Citizen Simordan, delegate of the Committee of Public Safety, assigned to Citizen Gauvin, commanding the expeditionary force of the Coastal Army. Robespierre, Danton, Marat. And beneath the signatures, June 28, 1793. While Simordan was reading, Marat looked at him. Marat said softly, as if talking to himself, this will all have to be stated in detail by a decree of the Convention or a special order of the Committee of Public Safety. Something still has to be done. Where do you live, Citizen Simordan? asked Robespierre. On the Cour de Commerce. So do I, said Danton. You're my neighbor. There's not a moment to lose, said Robespierre. Tomorrow you'll receive your formal commission, signed by all the members of the Committee of Public Safety. This is a confirmation of the commission, which will accredit you to the special representatives, Philippeau, Prior de la Marne, Le Cointre, Alquier, and the others. We know who you are. Your powers are unlimited. You can make Gauvin a general, or send him to the gallows. You'll have your commission at three o'clock tomorrow. When will you leave? At four o'clock, said Simordan, and they parted.